0: You're listening to The Dice Men Cometh, proudly sponsored by LFG Australia,
1: lfg-oz.com.au. Or you could visit their store in Canberra, it's in the ACT, for all your board gaming needs. And now, on with the show. The D- It is the Dice Men Cometh, and it is episode 355, believe it or not, dear listeners. Dice Men Cometh, for those of you playing at home or playing in your headphones, are Australia's leading, or at least longest running, <laughs> podcast and radio show about everything tabletop games, all those things you do on, around, near, over, under, pums, sometimes even through a table. Mm. We've been going at this for a long time, Mark, you o- and I. October
0: this year, Garth, will be the Dice Men's. Tenth
1: anniversary, can wow. you believe it? That's longer than a lot of people's relationships. It is. <laughs> now, as much as it would be lovely to reminisce, we really mm. do not have time. No, on episode three hundred and fifty-five because it is packed full of jam. Absolutely, and the jam is spiel des jam. Yes, because Mark, you had the privilege of interviewing James Wallace. I did, who is the author of a book that has been released by. I think it's Asmodee's yes, publishing arm. it is, yes. And the book's called Everybody Wins, and it's about the history of the Spielders Yaras. It is, and look, I don't want to spoil
0: any of it, except to say that James Wallace, if there's anyone in the gaming industry he doesn't know, let's just say, because he's been involved since, I think, 1988. Were you alive then, Garth? Oh, I I was almost nearly celebrating my own <laughs> 10th birthday back then. <laughs> oh my God, I'm so old. But so's James. He knows everyone, he's done everything, he's worked in role-playing games, board games, publishing magazines, books, fair to call him now a board games historian. Yeah, I think that's true. And he tells us all about the spiel and all about everything else he's been doing. It's a fascinating interview, he's a lovely guy to talk to, but you'll get to hear that later on. But
1: first, Garth... Well, first, first, Yes. just a quick shout out to his podcast, which is also called Everybody Wins. Mm. So it's a six-parter. Go and listen on your, um, I guess, podcast app of choice. But yes, before that, we're going to give you a little quickfire review of a tiny little game. It mm. comes in a tiny little box. Is it fun? Well, we'll find out in a couple of minutes. And we'll also announce our winners for the world famous Everybody Knows BorderCon competition. Absolutely. So, look, let's cut to a little break. Mm-hmm. We'll come back. We'll talk about a little game called Kites Come to Fly. But you with the Dice Man Cometh, and we'll be back after this break
0: the
2: dice man cometh hi this is amy from thinkerthema and you're
0: listening to the dice man cometh i just read that off a of dice i was handed from a stranger <laughs> the di- A funny comment there from one of our supporters, I'm sure. Now you are with the Dice Ben Cometh It's Garth and Mark. No Leon. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) I'm sure he's busy uh, doing something. Look, as long as he sent along the box of chocolates a couple of weeks ago, I think we're fine for a few (laughs) more months, aren't we? (laughs) Yes. But enough mucking around. What we have been playing lately, Garth, you and I, and I believe also your family mm. and some other friends of ours, is
1: this little game called Kites. Yeah, well, look, Kites, which is a little game by Floodgate Games, designed by Kevin Hamano and Art by Beth Sobel. Mm. Uh, of Wingspan and Cascadia mm. and lots of other games. There yes. are squillions if you go to her BGG profile. Uh, this game was very generously provided to us by Good Games as well. So oh. a little shout out to them Thank you, good for games. providing us with this game. So... When you sit down and say to somebody, Let's play a game, a lot of the time that's excitement. And then you go, Let's play a game about flying kites. <laughs> and sometimes that's met with excitement, sometimes it's not. And then if you say, Let us play a game about kites that is cooperative. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And then you say, And uh, uh, kites are represented by sand timers. just so you know. Can uh, you expand your mind? Yeah. Now, that is exactly what kites are. Time to Fly is all about. It is a fully cooperative game where you're just trying to put on the best kite show. Uh, Those kites are represented by sand timers and there are half a dozen of those, uh, but they're not all the same time limit. That would be just boring. So there is time limits from 30 seconds full of sand all Mm. the way to 90 seconds. And it's like 30, 45, 60, 75, and 90. Uh, So the game is essentially a deck of cards and these sand timers. And each card is a picture of a kite and on each card is one or two different colors and those colors match the same colors as the sand timers all colored sand i was going to say six sand timers it's going to be a pretty uninspiring
0: table but it is opposite of that market. yes when you said you've got this brightly colored sand and you've got different amount different amounts of it so and you've got these cute betsabell kite pictures it it's quite quite lovely on the table
1: absolutely so you've got Red, orange, yellow, blue, purple, and rainbow. Now, how do you have rainbow sand? (laughs) You don't. It's white. However, on your turn, you're going to quite simply be doing this thing, which is playing one card. As soon as you play that card, you're going to flip over the sand timers of the relevant colors, remembering that there's either going to be one or two colors on that particular kite. Uh, You're going to flip the timers, and then you're going to draw a card up. So you always have, until you get to the end of the deck, a certain number of cards depending on player count. It is real time, and it just goes round and round and round and round, round, round the table. On your turn, each player is just going to be playing a card, flipping one or two sand timers over, and moving around. Now, there are no rainbow cards, but the one thing you need to remember is if you play a one-colour card, you can either choose to flip the sand timer of that colour, or the rainbow colour. Yes. And that's really important. For one super mega important reason, and that becomes very apparent when the deck starts to run out. Because the only way you're going to win this game is if collectively, you play every single card in the deck and the deck is around about let's not say around about—it it is a minimum of 53 cards. Yes. So you've got to do that and you do it in real time, real time, real time, real time because the way you win is get through all of those cards before any of the sand timers run out as you're flipping them away. But as soon as the last card is drawn from the draw pile, meaning the face down deck, yeah. you can no longer flip over that rainbow timer anymore. Now, the rainbow timer is a minute. However, it's very unlikely that the sand timer will be at a minute when you make that final flip so you're trying to balance this right at the very end to go oh it looks like there's a couple of cards available someone better flip this white one right now because we're not going to be able to flip it soon flip
0: (sighs) and then you've got one minute to basically clear out a maximum
1: of one minute and all hell breaks looks um that's how you win the way you lose is quite simply any of the sand timers run out of sand and that is Bloody hard sometimes to stop happening mm-hmm. because everyone around the table is constantly looking at every single sand timer, and there are times where you don't want to flip anything because you're constantly worried about the red sand timer because that's the one thirty-second yep. one and that's the one you're going to have to flip all the time. But say the person before you's just flipped it and every other one's looking good, you can just delay. You can sit back. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> However. That comes with its own stresses yes. because all the other sand timers are going and you're only going to flip one of them. Mm-hmm. So the great thing is communication around the table is absolutely part of the deal here. You are going, I can do this one. I can do that one. Mark, can you do that one? Oh, blah, 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 blah. Yep. Okay, good. And hopefully it all works together. <laughs> and a lot of the time it doesn't. Yes. And we're talking about the base game.
0: I was going to say, because it sounds like, yeah, that could be challenging for a, couple of rounds, a few rounds, but once you get in the swing of it, I could see, oh, yeah, we got this, we got this, and you just got to, you know, keep talking, keep talking, and you'd
1: be able to uh, to get through that. But there's ways to change it up. Well, there is, um, and they are thematically called challenge cards, mm-hmm. which I believe is a card kite-flying terminology. <laughs> um, there are three different types of cards, and there are four of each type of card mm-hmm. And I love this about the game is it quite simply says, make it as difficult as you like by putting in any number of challenge cards that you want. So it's not anything more than do it. If you manage to win, make it a bit trickier. So the three different types of challenge cards are one, storm cards. Mm. Now, if you draw a storm card, then you have to immediately announce a storm is coming. The game continues until your next turn, where you have to play this storm card as your next card. and as part of that, you have to flip every single sand timer. Oh can be very nasty. Yes, very, very, very nasty, particularly when someone to the right of you who's ever played before has typically just, we'll have flipped, just flipped a couple flipped one. that's right um. So that's quite challenging the other ones are crossed lines it's got a little picture of obviously um you know kites running into the i guess the telegraph pole lines Mm -hmm. um you do that one you cannot say anything when you draw this card you just sit there with absolutely no expression to give it anything away you just have to play it on your next turn say crossed line so that everyone is aware of it and every single player has to play a card Um, to the player to their left and the player to their right. So you're passing cards around. Um, It uses up so much valuable time. Yes. Uh, And all you want to be doing is flipping over sand timers and this doesn't make you do it because you have to play it next. The third and final type is airplane cards. Now, what are airplanes most famous for, Mark? Uh, Taking people from one destination to another? Absolutely. Being noisy so Uh, that you can't hear each other talk. So... Again, if you draw an aeroplane card, you cannot say anything, but you have to play it on your next turn. And once you play that, all communication at the table has to stop until that card has been covered up by your next card. So it's like this? Yes, it is. (laughs) Uh, Now, every player has their own individual discard pile Mm because you're just playing cards and flipping them. So it might go around to, to me to my next turn, then I can play another card and it's fine. However, if you're playing with all four of those in the deck, there very really realistically is a chance where there could be two out. So it's just prolonging this lack of communication, which makes everything more difficult. It makes this game just that next level of, of complexity so that you can play it as an introductory game with no uh, negative effects. And in fact, there's basically a learning mode where you know it's even easier. Um, and then you can ramp up and scale up the difficulty. So what we did, and I've played this a truckload with my family, is that we typically introduce the Storm card, storm cards first. Mm-hmm. and Then we might go to the Aeroplane cards, and then the finer ones we've been using are the cross-line ones, just because that extra sort of, oh, I've got to think about passing something to you and something to you. And it, uh, um, it is one of only two games in the last two years that I've sleeved, because we played it so much <laughs> that the cards are already destroyed. Yes. Uh, you go through this game so quickly, yes. and you will play it again and again and again. I love it. It's really good fun. It, look, it is... Firstly, when you described this game to me,
0: I the thing that came to mind for me was the what's the book? Is it the the kite flyer? Anyway, it's about young boy who goes from Afghanistan to America, and he keeps referring back to how they had these kite fights. Mm-hmm. You know, kites with glass built into the string, and they would cut each other's. Reasonably, and I was like, yeah, it's going to be this competitive cutthroat, <laughs> kite flying, this kite flying. Oh, no, it's cooperative. It's it's fun. And it's like oh geez, I could not believe how much fun this was and the thing that i could not even believe more than i couldn't believe that was i couldn't believe that leon with his fear of real-time games <laughs> it's a genuine anxiety setting fear um that he has talked about on the show mm. he actually enjoyed this game he i mean i think he had a bit of anxiety there but not to the level where he was incapacitated and had to roll onto
1: the floor. And most importantly, had fun. Yeah. Uh, I do find it scales very, very differently in complexity um, when particularly my daughter and I have played it mm-hmm. with pretty much all the bad cards in there. we found that even at two players, it hasn't been a super big challenge. Yeah. However, at uh, four, and I think it plays up to six. Oh, wow. Um, just because so much happens between your own individual turns when you're playing with the higher player count... There's just there's there's just a lack of agency, so yes. you're really just making the best of of that situation. It's this tactic tactical versus strategic, um, which really does change between the player count. But I really um, was impressed with this. I even took it to work and ran it as a little icebreaker before uh, before a team meeting that I was running. Uh, everyone loved it. I managed to get a copy sold, so ah. someone managed to buy a copy, which was which was great. So um, Kevin and Beth um i'll take a element of your royalties <laughs> please um but look uh it was like 30 something dollars yeah um it's just good fun It's very family friendly uh i do h- hardly recommend it i think it, i think it just fits into a nice little spot i was
0: going to say it that sort of niche where one of the another game we talked about recently uh 5211 yep where it's like it hits the table and pretty much everyone around the table goes Ooh, this is good. You can you can see the attraction of it straight away. With this one, maybe it takes you a couple of rounds. But, yeah, I, look, I've really enjoyed it. And, again, this could be a game that could be in almost everyone's collection. You can yes. certainly see a time You can pull this out, smash it out in, you know, 15 minutes,
1: playing a couple of rounds in that time. Yep. Um. And everyone having fun. Yep. Only complaint is that the cards only have the matching symbols in the top left and right oh, corners. Yes. They're not in all four corners, which becomes an issue when it's time critical. You're drawing cards face down from the draw deck, and it's like, oh, I've got to flip yeah, these cards flip around. them around. But in terms of problems with um, games, yeah. there are a lot more games with a lot more problems.
0: Well, there you go. That was Kites, uh, as we said, proud, uh, proudly provided to us by Good Games. Thank you so much, Good Games. Let's quickly take another break, and we'll come back and get into the interview. You're with the Diceman Cometh. Iceman!
1: So this is Mitch from the Board Game Barbecue and everything I learned, I learned from the Diceman Cummins. The Diceman Alright, we are back. And without any further ado, Mark had the privilege of sitting down and having an interview from one hemisphere to the other with James Wallace. Now, James Wallace is the author behind Everybody Wins, which is the story of the Spiel des Jahres winners. And it, again, the podcast, which I've listened to of his, does things in decades. And that's really, really cool for anyone who has an inkling of gaming historia, history, historium. But Mark, you had managed to have a really nice sit down with James. He's mm-hmm. a very interesting character. He knows everything and everybody about gaming. And I'm not going to rabbit it on anymore. I'm just going to let you play the button. So here is the interview with Mark. And James Wallace of Everybody Wins.
0: Okay, now, once again, it is very exciting to be here providing a fantastic interview for the podcast. And today is no exception because I'm talking to James Wallace. As I understand, he's the long-lost brother of Martin, and he's going to tell us the real story behind the railway wars, the fallout between
2: Martin and Glenn Drover over Railroad Tycoon. Is that right, James? sadly i wish that was true i really do uh no martin and i i've met martin um once he probably wouldn't remember uh but we spell us our surnames differently and as far as i know there's no family link
0: oh well of course james you are among many other things the designer of the baron munchausen rpg which for those who don't know a game of competitive boasting which one could argue was one of the originators of the GM-less, story-heavy, mechanics light RPG genre, don't you think?
2: I, absolutely, yeah. It came out in 1998, and I didn't realise I was doing anything particularly revolutionary at the time. But subsequently, people have, have gone, you know, this is basically the first of what became the story games movement. You were
0: well ahead of the curve, that's for sure.
2: It, it was. I just wanted to do a silly drinking game, basically. <laughs> it it, re- it replaces dice and, and paper and character sheets with money and fine wine. Well,
0: if you ever make it out
2: here, I'd love to get my copy autograph,
0: that's for sure. But then, for those who didn't know, you were also the founder of Hogshead Publishing, which, as I understand, mm-hmm. at the time, was the largest RPG publisher in the UK. Is that right?
2: It was. And again, this is, this is the 90s. But it was the first company since Games Workshop that had actually made a go of publishing role playing games in in the UK, largely because um, a lot of them would the UK market just wasn't that big, and a lot of them would start up and go, "We'll sell all over the country," and subsequently discovered there wasn't enough sales in the UK and would go bust. And uh, we got Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which we did under license from Games Workshop, nice. and we focused on the American market, and that gave us enough money to then branch out and do other exciting stuff. We did Slay Industries, we did Nobilis, uh, which was, I think, the first, you know, gorgeously presented coffee table-style role-playing game, big diceless kind of post-Sandman stuff, and we had huge fun for about eight years, and then the D20, for those who remember, the D20 glut of the early 2000s came in and just killed the market, and I sold the company at that point and went off and did other things, but I'm back. But, James, most importantly, you've seen the light. You've come back from the
0: dark side of RPGs to where you, I believe, (laughs) started, which is obviously the board game side of the hobby. And now you're a board game historian?
2: It seems to have happened almost by accident, yes. Um, Ian Livingston, one of the founders of Games Workshop, came to me a few years ago and asked me to co-write a book with him on the history of games, which is called Board Games in 100 Moves. And then I've just got um, this new book, Everybody Wins, um, has just come out, just released in Australia, which is about the rise of modern board games over the last four decades and and how it went from, you know, a a kind of almost a barren terrain uh, of of Monopoly and Cluedo and the rest of those, if you weren't in Germany, to where we are now with literally hundreds of thousands of, of gorgeous hobby games hundreds of different mechanics, loads of different styles, amazing production values, and millions of people playing them. That's right. And, look, I do want to take us on
0: a journey today. Now, firstly, the book is Everybody Wins, The Greatest Board Games Ever Made, where, as you said, you tell the story, basically, of the journey of games through to the Spiel des Jahres Awards, the games that won, the games that didn't. Before we get into that, I must ask, it was Steve D who put us on to you.
2: Board game, RPG designer extraordinaire and Australian. How do you know Steve? I, I connected with him originally through fandom in the, in the 90s, the early days of the internet, Usenet bulletin boards, Rec Games, FRP, MISC for those who were there. Oh, wow. Um, and chatted through that. And he's a longtime Warhammer Fantasy roleplay player. He's worked on every edition. And, you know, so we got chatting and we got to know each other and I run a thing called the Game Design Masterclass, which is a three-hour crash course in in how to make games. And Steve ran it in Australia. I see the link now, yes. Yeah, has done several sessions because of course he's a designer as well. And I boost his stuff and he boosts my stuff and we talk to each other about games design. Um, and he's a lovely bloke, he's, he's always good company. And he's just had a, a great success
0: with the score, his new little 18 card RPG. I mean, it's so great. We were able to play it live on a podcast. It took like fifteen minutes. But enough about Steve. Now, James, why the Spiel des Jahres and why now?
2: Oh, well, the Spiel des Jahres, I think, is it's the Game of the Year award in Germany, um, and it's very underrated for its impact on the the industry and the hobby. As as a whole, an awful lot of these awards exist. I don't know if you've heard of the Booker Prize for fiction. Yes, it's uh, supposedly the biggest fiction prize in the world. And you win that, and you'll sell an extra two hundred thousand copies of your book. And that's just peanuts to the Spiel. <laughs> you win the Spiel, you'll sell up to half a million copies of your board game. It has extraordinary impact for you know for creating the reputations not just of games but of designers. And you win the Spiel, that's your career made pretty much. And so I think it's worth drawing a little bit more attention to that. But it has formed almost the backbone. It tells the story of the rise of modern board games by looking at what's won it uh, and in which year. And by looking at that, you can see how the trends are developing, what new mechanics are coming through, what designers are coming to the fore, who dominates the market for a while. It's a really interesting tool to examine or path to to look at this, this growth. And why now? It's and I think it's an interesting moment. We're at an interesting kind of kind of crux because you know games have arrived. The pandemic was extraordinarily good for board games. It is now a, a vibrant global market. There are literally billions of dollars at stake. Asmodee, for those who don't know, Asmodee, the the biggest board game hobby board game distributor and publisher in the world, sold last year to the Embracer Group in Sweden for more than uh, I think it was two and a half billion euros. So there's a lot of money, There's a, you know, and that means there's, it's a big market now. There's a big audience. People are interested in this stuff. It's difficult to get hold of accurate numbers on this stuff, and this is something I discovered when I was doing the book because I think a lot of publishers play it quite close to their chest. But Hasbro announced that Dungeons & Dragons on its own turned over a billion dollars last year. That doesn't surprise me. No, I mean, they've they've just been going from strength to strength and I think it'll be a lot bigger this year with the movie. But, but yeah, it's it's an interesting moment. It's just on the verge of becoming a big thing and, you know, a proper kind of a household name and everybody, know, at least if you haven't played Guitar, they will know about Guitar, they'll know about Carcassonne, they'll know about Ticket to Ride and Codenames.
0: Now, I have a confession to make. Mm-hmm. So, as someone who is a part-time amateur board game journalist... Even I've only played 33 out of the 44 winners. You, you are way ahead of
2: most people there. I was going to say, where does that rate? <laughs> no, that's, that's really, I mean, particularly in Australia. I, you know, I'm in the UK. I'm in South London. It's literally a couple of hundred miles to Germany from where I live. Find, and I was collecting games through the 80s, through the 90s. Many of the games when I started writing this, and it started off as a magazine column in tabletop gaming magazine, Ah, yes, well, I started writing that, and I had to go to Germany. I had to go to Essen to find copies of this, but or it was that or or pay sixty or eighty pounds on eBay for a for a copy um and trust me, some of those older games are not worth sixty pounds <laughs> <Really not. laughs> now did you have to play them all or at least all the winners? Oh, yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I wouldn't have... Um, I've been reviewing games professionally. This is going to make me sound horribly old. Since 1988, when I was still at college. And the one thing it's taught me is you can't review a game without playing. Yes. It. Because there have been a couple of times where I've been on a deadline. Thought, I thought, I simply can't get a group up to put this on a table. I'll try it. I'll play all the parts, and I'll see how it goes. And I'll write the review based on that. And I've done it a couple of times, and I have been horribly wrong <laughs> um i owe the designer and publisher of Space Base a massive apology because i couldn't find the fun in that game playing it solo <laughs> and it's been a huge hit and people absolutely love it and going back to it i can see why but i'm sorry i was on a deadline this actually brings me
0: to a question which i totally don't have written down but now you've mentioned it The rise of solo gaming is something I know I didn't see coming. Personally, look, I've done it once or twice for pretty much exactly the same reason that you did stated, because I needed to see what a game was like to see if it was either worthwhile teaching to friends or
2: worthwhile reviewing,
0: but it is now its own beast. What do you make of that?
2: I think it's really interesting. I have to say it's not for me. It's, for me, a large part of the pleasure of a board game is sitting around a table with people I know or people I don't know. Yes. And the social interaction of of it all. Richard Bartle, he's a British academic. We should know him, there should be statues to this guy. He invented online gaming (gasps) back in the late 70s with a thing called the Multi-User Dungeon at the University of Essex, played, this is before there was widespread internet usage, played over the joint academic network, which was a proto-internet connecting university mainframes in the uk but he became a games well a computing academic but a games academic as well and he looked at how people were playing his game and broke them down into four main chunks or said there are four main reasons for playing games like this there are socializing um spending time with friends or characters you like even if those are games characters and have no external existence there are uh, achievers there are explorers and there are killers who are just there to kill things. <laughs> um, and this, obviously, this is an online proto-role-playing game done entirely in text. It's very early days. But those, those categories still stand up. And the social aspect, for me, is really important. At the same time, it's not always possible, as I said, to get a group together. So I think the solo aspect of, of games is really interesting. And games designed specifically for that... And let's not forget that the uh, most played computer game of all time is Solitaire on Windows. Yes. People do like playing games on their own. And games designed specifically for that are enormously rewarding. Or can be. I'm not (laughs) going to generalize that massively. So, yes, I, I didn't see it coming either. For a long time, there didn't seem to be really any. The idea of a game for one They were a curio. But anything that stretches the market, anything that pushes it out so that more people can enjoy board games, I'm all for. And I think it's still comparatively early days for the design of these things. I can only see it getting better, getting more immersive, getting more interesting.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Do you think you could ever see the day where a solo game might win the Spiel des
2: Jahres? That is a good question. I'm going to say... Probably not because the spiel is very much based around family games. Yes. Um it's its target market is still families and social groups in Germany who don't buy an awful lot of games. But it's about again the social aspect is really important. Um it's interesting, it's after I'd finished working on the book, but before it actually came out, I met Harold Schrappers, who runs the Spiel des Jahres, uh, the chairman okay. of the jury, and he was in the UK exploring board games cafes because these don't really exist in Germany German culture doesn't kind of have a niche for board game cafes there's there's a few but you know the UK any town of decent size will have a games cafe and I think it's the same in in America I imagine Australia as well
0: it was a bit slower to take off here and what we found I mean like I live in in Tasmania very small part of Australia Hobart the capital is a city of 250, 260,000 people. We've seen one pop up a couple of times and it it didn't last very long. Whereas I know in Melbourne and Sydney, there have been a couple and, you know, because they're a city of five or six million, they tend to do okay. But yeah, you seem to really need the population base, I think.
2: But I I was astounded to discover that Germany doesn't have, you know, the way their social system is kind of set up and the way you socialise with friends doesn't really involve games cafes. But... It is an award fundamentally for, for kind of family style games or games that you can play with the, with the family. Yes. Um, more advanced than perhaps the English-speaking world would think of as family games. I mean, the Spiele si winner that every hobby gamer knows is, is Catan. Yes. Um, but Ticket to Ride won. And then some heavyweights like El Grande and Torres and Tikal, those were winning in the, the late nineties. You look at those and go, family games, really? But it depends on the family. The spiel has been going through a shift in in what it considers a winning game. Uh, micro-macro. I don't know why I say it with a French accent. I always say <laughs> micro micro-macro. Oh, micro, macro, micro It sounds better in French. I mean, it's essentially Where's Wally if Wally was a serial killer. Yes. It's a brilliant game of, you know, hunting for stuff on a map. And
0: there's a little bit of dark stuff hidden there, isn't there?
2: Yes, there's, there's some odd windows, and there's, as, as, as you say, depraved stuff going on in there. But you could play that solo. Uh, it doesn't need to be to a multiplayer game. That one, they've been going, varying out into party games recently. Uh, the most recent winner is Cascadia, which is, a you know, almost an old-school game. Yes. Uh, or feels very old-school, although its mechanics are bang up today. And in many ways, it's almost a roll-and-write or a, a move-and-write um, because that massive score pad you have to fill out at the end, I do love it. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous game. We
0: weren't a big fan, but I guess you know we do our uh, episode every year where we talk about the the spiel, and we probably put more effort into the Kennish spiel because I guess it's those it's those gamers' games. But even we've observed that you know the Kennish spiel, it started off they gave the special prize to Agricola in two thousand and eight, yeah, and they gave another special prize to Space Alert. Twenty ten World Without End was called the Game of the Year Plus, and then twenty eleven they started the Kennish Bill. But even then, what we've seen is that the drift in the Kennish Bill to the lighter end, even since then, and we, we've you know we've commented on that a lot. But as you said, it really it's all about those German families and and uh, where they're going. Now I did want to ask, so you've described it there nicely, where really the award and the hobby. Started off with, let's just say, you know, a bunch of nerds in the UK, but then all of a sudden, and uh, you describe it in the book that basically the Germans came over, saw what was happening in the UK and thought, we need to get some of this, and started to try and promote the hobby in Germany. And then it sort of went almost, as you mentioned, oh, mental blank, this is what happens when you get old, the map of Spain. El Grande? El Grande, yes. Oh, God, sorry.
2: El Grande. Yeah, so, yeah. you know,
0: all of a sudden you, you're playing what we would consider a heavy-ish, at, particularly at the time in 1996, a heavy-ish game. The whole award seemed at that stage very German. But now you've got um, particularly the US market coming in. And then when you look at, I mean, I, don't, I know some of the, a lot of these are European designers, but if you look at code names and Azul and Just One and Cascadia as you said it's really it's gone back to being more family friendly but now it is much more global
2: and much much more diverse and people are bringing in influences from their local communities as as well yeah i mean the, the early winners of of the spiel are really diverse the first winner was hare and tortoise which is actually a british game that had come out in 1972 then we have rummy cub which I think was Romanian or possibly Israeli, depending on when you actually date its publication. It was someone who emigrated to to Israel. Yes. Um, and then there are French games. And then actually Ravensburger just <laughs> won it several times. But Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective won, which was an American game. We just talked about that recently. People aren't aware of how long
0: that's actually been around for.
2: Yeah, it's it's an early 80s game. I remember looking at it in the shop. I mean, I think I say it's the... Spiel as you are winner you're most likely to find in a charity shop or a what the americans would call goodwill or you know that kind of thing a second-hand shop of, of any kind though i think dixit is coming up fast on that i see quite a lot of copies of dixit around i mean that may be in in london but yes it's it's interesting um what games people hold and and what people get rid of. But also where the Spiel is going, you're absolutely right. The Spiel itself, the games I think are becoming simpler and the Kenner Spiel games are following that. Yes. Because um, Quacks of Quedlingburg won two or three years ago, won the Kenner Spiel. And I would say that's a lighter game than Cascadia, which actually won the Spiel this year. I think they're they're still kind of feeling their way for what is a Spiel-winning game, what is a Kenner Spiel-winning game. We picked Living Forest as the winner.
0: Mm. Um, and that was one that we sort of went, huh, kiddies game. We played it a little bit more, and you see, ah, oh, there is there is a bit of a depth of strategy there, and we've really enjoyed it. And the crew is another one that we absolutely love. Oh, I love the crew. But as you said, they certainly if if the Kennish started out as the, the gamers game or what does it mean in Germany? Like the people who in the know.
2: Yes, that's that's a very good way of putting it. Connoisseur is the usual translation, but kind of connoisseurs' game doesn't really—it sounds a bit clunky. But in the know, I think is really good.
0: Yeah, at, at things like village legends of and or
2: Istanbul, seven wonders. Yeah,
0: yeah, meaty, meaty, chunky games there.
2: Yeah, I I, I agree. It's—I mean, this is part of what you know. I break within the book. I break the ages of the Yahas down into um, five different sections. And at the moment, I think they're they're kind of in transition. They're finding a new direction at the moment, partly spurred by the growth of the global market for hobby game. Um, they're responding to a different audience who aren't just looking for the game that they'll play with the family this Christmas. Perhaps they're more aware of games. Perhaps they're, perhaps they're playing more games. Games are more accessible. You can play games as apps these days. Yes. Um, you know, I've played far more Carcassonne digitally than I have on the tabletop. Uh, partly because I can't stand scoring farms; um, <laughs> it's, just, it's laborious uh, on the yes. tabletop. Having a machine to do it for you is lovely, but yeah, it's—I mean—the whole territory is is changing. It's it's responding really fast to the global market. An increased appetite for this kind of thing, new mechanics coming through, new ways of playing games, which are really exciting. You talked about the solo stuff. Uh, Co-op games as well. I mean, there have been co-op games around since. The earliest one I know of is a Thunderbirds game from the 1960s, 1964. I think it's not very good. I have a copy (laughs) of it. It's very much a kid's game. But it is. You're all working together to beat the game. It kind of fits and starts. People would reinvent the idea. And then Knizia did Lord of the Rings in 2000. And that was a big hit, and that was the moment people sat up and paid attention, and then Matt Leacock came along and basically went, no, this is how you do co-op, and, you know, it's it's nobody, we haven't looked back from there. But I think an awful lot of people respond to that, the idea of doing a game where you, there's not going to be a loser, either you all lose or you all win, but it's not head-to-head, you're not competing against each other within the group. It's it's a much friendlier, a much more social experience.
0: Now, James, you mentioned Matt Leacock there. Now, one of the things that struck me is there are some really great designers who have never won a Spiel des Jahres. In your analysis, did you pick any real howlers, any shockers, any years where they clearly got it wrong?
2: Yeah, there are a few. And I think they're, they're generally acknowledged. And the big one is, I can't remember the year, mid-2000s where Villa Paletti wins. And Villa Paletti is a really attractive stacking game. It's a building game where you're building this bizarre thing. And it the finished sculpture and its beautiful bits of wood. It's it's Zoc who do these amazing wooden games. Um, it beat Puerto Rico, you know which at the time I think was the number one game on Board Game Geek and was number one for about seven years or something. I mean, love or hate, Puerto Rico, you've got to respect its status within the industry and the influence it has had. And the fact that Filippoletti, which is as a game, it's fine. It's just, I don't see people rushing to get it back to the table. Um, You know, I have kids who are exactly the target audience for that kind of thing they're not overly keen on it minari came out a few years ago also from zoc which is a co-op version using very similar pieces and is actually a much better game than villa paletti
0: i was going to say junk
2: junk art is that not very similar yeah it's i have to admit i've never played junk art uh that's the other thing it is difficult yeah, it's difficult to be an authority on this. There are so many games coming out, you know, unless you do it every evening to, you know, sitting in your local cafe where everybody's going, oh, i never heard of that one. Bring it on.
0: <laughs> well, and then, of course, you have the issue of, I mean, you know, to throw a, uh, a gloom haven in the mix where you've got hundreds of hours of gaming just in the one box and then they bring a new one and then, you know, there are so many of those big story event games now. How how can we play them all?
2: Absolutely, and you know I I'm a narrativist. I love story in games. I do come out of role playing. Role playing was where, actually where I started off as a role playing designer and publisher. I would love to get into these. I actually I backed Kick. Um, gloomhaven on the kickstarter and it arrived and i opened the box and i looked at it and i went and i looked at the half finished copy of pandemic legacy season one that we have still not actually finished oh thank goodness we're not the only ones no no no, matt we'll wait for you to come back and we'll finish it we've never finished it but yeah and i i sealed that box back up and i sold it on ebay at a small Mm. profit um, I'm not proud of myself, but, uh, <laughs> but I would I would love to get into those. But I mean, just legacy games generally yeah. de- demand so much time from you. And I buy these things for research because I have to know how they work. and I have to know the components. And sometimes, if I'm lucky, I get sent them to review. But I have a bunch of legacy games upstairs from My City, the Knizia one that was a finalist for the Spiel a couple of years ago. Um, I have Risk Legacy, an original printing of Risk Legacy. I have not played either of them. <laughs> no, we played one session of My City and the family didn't take to it. And it's like, well, we've got the stickers on the board now. I can't reset it. It's I can't. Uh, which is also the problem it's you know you can't start it with a different group we
0: had a very similar experience with that one I must admit Mm. Um, Risk Legacy I think we got to the fifth campaign and our own Pandemic Legacy season one we've played up to the end of November we've unlocked everything so what is the incentive to play December there's nothing new to see
2: other other than finishing off the story. The sense of
1: accomplishment. Yeah, no, I'm wrong. Right.
2: <laughs> Maybe it tells you a bit yes. about us.
1: So there you go. That was the first part of Mark's interview with James. We will be right back after this break.
2: The Dice Man comes. I'm Baron Munchausen, subject of The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, a role playing game or some such. And you're listening to The Diceman Cometh, my second favourite Tasmanian board game podcast. The Dice Man
1: Cometh. Well, there you go. That was our break. And assuming there was something either very funny or very topical put into that little break. So we are back with part two of Mark's interview with James.
0: Now, I do have two more really important questions before I let you go. Okay. So now, I'm hearkening back to some Diceman Cometh history. In episode 174 from July 2017, we interviewed Martin Klein, one of the Spiel the Jahres judges, and we put the question to him that the whole thing was just a money-spinning scam. <laughs> but seriously, we put the question to them that surely it's in the interest of the of the panel to pick the game that they think is going to sell the most copies because they're making money from having that little pawn on the box.
2: That's right. They charge a royalty for every, you know, if you put the spiel, the red popple, purple as it's known, um, the pawn on the cover to say that you've won the spiel, you have to pay a royalty to them. So, yeah, and there have been some years where deserving games have won, and one of the big examples is is Torres, the Wolfgang Kramer thing of the late 90s, which is a building game, um, not one of my personal favourites, but people do love it. It didn't sell. I hate it. Interesting. I'm a big Kramer fan. I think Tikal, Torres came the year after Tikal. I think Tikal is so good, and Torres is just quite dry in comparison yeah it's Torres does not make it to the table very often let's put it that way but Torres only sold 200 copies which for the spiel is a you know that's a disaster that's really low and uh, so it hit their income but at the same time they don't have that many expenses all their judges are volunteers they're paid expenses but they're not actually paid they're not salaried um I believe they've got an office. But um, I think they support, and I think this was controversial, they do put some money, or have in the past, put money into one of the games museums or games archives run by a fel- former chairman of, of the jury. And there was a bit of a scandal about this in the early 2000s, I think, that the links between the two were too close. But yeah, I mean, it's I've run an award. I ran, a, I set up a thing 23 years ago called the Diana Jones Award for Excellence in Gaming. Oh, yes. One award. Um, it started off as a bit of fun. It, it was a way for me to basically stay in contact with American friends I don't see during the, the year and, and has snowballed and has become this this thing, but it does not generate any income. We do not have a, a revenue source for that other than asking people to sponsor the awards party, and that's it. Nobody gets paid, and it does hamper you. Well, that was my
0: my second question. Probably the more important one is, why do we still care so much what the germans think and why hasn't someone else in the us or the uk come up with something that can sweep this aside because i mean for the rest of the world if you're not really into this hobby you don't think of germany as this gaming mecca do you
2: no and i think that's why it doesn't have as much currency outside germany as particularly in the mass market why would people care about the german game of the year award within the hobby it's it's quite well known and i think that you know my book helps to helps to promote that absolutely and it is it's worth saying my book is published by aconite which is part of asmodee the book distributor so they regard it as a way of essentially publicizing hobby games in general and specifically quite a lot of games that they actually publish catan is one of theirs outside germany um, uh, ticket to ride is one of theirs code names they distribute all, all the rest of that but no it's really interesting i'm going to get closer to the microphone for this it's really interesting you say this now mark <laughs> because i've been having conversations with a few people about the the awards landscape right now and i do think there's a void there's an awful lot of small awards and i have to be quite careful in my wording here because i'm the book is actually up for a couple of them right now and i don't want to to annoy anyone as is as is a podcast that i do a role-playing podcast called Ludo Narrative dissidents just plugging that that one of course I'm, while i'm on the air but no i'm actually i'm talking to people saying i think there is a void for a global award you know with a nice tight focus so like the spiel it's not awarding too many too many things which is where the origins award which was the big one in the 80s and the 90s but they've they do like 30 different awards and it's you know over the year as do the annies which is the big role playing one it's difficult to keep track and it devalues if there's 30 of them every year it devalues the worth of every individual one
0: we started our own it was called the half the half arseys (laughs) <laughs> which we did as a joke because we thought we could do better than some of these other awards. But then it actually we actually turned it into a real award. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Kanga. I have, yes. Um, So we, the half-arsies basically turned into the Kanga, and now it's been a real thing for the past few years. And I guess we, we've also tried to keep the focus very narrow, uh, narrow. And that one, there has to be some Australian content, whether it's a designer, an artist, a publisher, or whatever.
2: That, that makes sense. I mean, the Australian scene is... I think it's it's again, it's overlooked on the international market, despite the fact there's some really interesting stuff. Um, I mean, it's been interesting for decades there was some really exciting you know i'm an old role player really <laughs> exciting stuff coming out of australia in the late 80s and early 90s including some early stuff the, the the thing called the freeform book which was basically an a precursor of what's become nordic larp the big kind of the, the casual larp scene that's really into kind of drama rather than hitting people with rubber swords yes uh, really interesting and it got no traction internationally no partly because the distribution. At the time was was an absolute zoo yeah you've got amazing designers down there you've got really interesting stuff coming out but you've got to you know the only way to make a splash internationally is to get published by an American or or a German but yeah I think there's a void there I've actually been having conversations with people about an opportunity because I've got experience in running an award admittedly one that makes no money (laughs) so watch this space watch this space and I don't I don't want to challenge the the spiel I don't want to go up against it I, I have a great love and respect for for the spiel I have two entire shelves not square shelves but you know uh rows of my 5x5 yes. five five Kallax bookshelf are taken up with Spiel des Jahres winning games. But I think there is room for a, a big international award out there that celebrates the very best of the hobby um, and acts as the spiel has done, as an introduction to people who aren't hobby gamers yet, just shows them the gateway and goes, try this. I mean, that's the value of a a really good award. It says, you should try this. It has value. It's it's what you're looking for. That's right. If you don't know where to start, here's some ideas. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I love browsing game shops. You go in, going into a game store for the first time as somebody who's heard that hobby games are exciting and you should try them out and being confronted by 2,000 brightly colored boxes ranging in price from 15 pounds up to several hundred. So you'd just be bewildered without something that will guide you to, to the stuff you should be interested in. And a good game shop will have st- members of staff who will do that for you, mm-hmm. but um, they're not all good game shops. And something like Amazon, you know, again, where do you start? The trouble with Amazon is you need to know what you're looking for.
0: It is tricky. Now, are you planning a follow-up? on either the Kinderspiel or the Kenner Spiel, or if not, what's next for
2: author and board game historian, James Wallace? <laughs> um, I'm pitching a bunch of books at the moment. The the thing I'd really like to write, um, this is a madly ambitious project, is a book called How Games Work, which is not a How to Design Games book, though I've been doing that for a, for a while. It's taking the learning that I've got from teaching people how to design games over the last 15 years. And talking about that, so talking about mechanics and talking about that, but also about emotional engagement, the rapport, all the Richard Bartle stuff, the Bartle player types and how those affect games design. Looking at the history of games, you know, 6,000 years of, of games culture and evolution and what games mean to us as human beings, as a species. I think it's such a rich vein. There's so much material there. That's the book I would like to write next. I just need to find someone to pay me to do it.
0: Have you um, caught someone who came back into my life after such a long absence is Scott Nicholson? Oh, no, I haven't. Professor of board of Game Design, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, is his official title, but he did way back when I first got into this hobby. He had a little YouTube series way before YouTube was a thing called Board Games mm-hmm. with Scott. He's just come back after a long, long break, and he's doing a, a short uh, a YouTube series called immersion where he focuses on one particular element of one particular game and then sort of expands from there so as an example he's talked about how they use those cards in uh the troubled life of billy kerr where they sort of they only show a glimpse of a picture and talk and he uses that to talk about storytelling games he he talks has an episode where he talks about the um the do something now porn in magic maze Yes, And how it promotes communication without people communicating. Um, I just have found it quite fascinating because it's, it's very microscopic in its, fo- in its focus, maybe a little bit more um, academic than what a lot of people might be looking for, but yeah. Uh,
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, it sounds interesting. Jeff Engelstein has a newsletter that does something similar. He takes one mechanic each time or one aspect, micro aspect of a game and just zooms in on it and looks at it. He's he's fascinating. Have you read Building Blocks of Tabletop Game Design, his book of game mechanics?
0: No, but when you mentioned about the game you, the book that you were talking about, he was the person that came to my mind because I knew, I know he put a lot of his... Um, columns and podcast episodes and into into a book. James, that sounds like a fascinating project. Please keep us in mind. Obviously, if you need some faces for the cover, don't, don't come to us. But if you need some <laughs> expert commentary, you know, we'd love to be part of it. It has been lovely chatting with you. It's been great. Thank you so much for this. No, my pleasure. And if you ever make it out this way, firstly, we can provide an introduction to Martin Wallace. He's actually a friend of ours, even though he's at the opposite end of the country.
2: It'd be lovely to see him again.
0: But um, secondly, yeah, we'd love to catch up, and obviously then I can get my uh, my copy of the third edition of
2: Baron Munchausen autographed. I would be delighted. Um, I'll see if I can get the Baron to sign it as well. He's <laughs> an elusive character these days.
0: Well, I think he may be busy. He's got a lot on his mind.
2: <laughs> but, James, look, once
0: again, Everybody Wins, the greatest board games ever made is the book. Where's the best place for people to get hold of it?
2: Uh, well, it's actually it's in physical distribution, in Australia so it should be popping up in game stores and failing that uh, your online bookseller of choice can probably get you a copy and plus I mean there's a there are ebooks there's also there's an audiobook as well if if audiobooks are your thing
0: fascinating and of course your I was going to say your podcast yes uh,
2: more of more of my dulcet tones and my BBC accent uh, yes it's um the podcast is I did a six-part podcast to accompany the book actually which is also called Everybody wins. Or actually, it's called the Aconite Podcast. Season one presents Everybody Wins, um, but that's just six episodes of me talking to people. I mentioned I, the game. The book splits into five sections chronologically, and I just find guests who were influential during each of those sections and interview them. So, section one is David Parlett, who won the first the Eyes in seventy nine, and Ian Livingston. Number two is Jervis Johnson, who created Blood Bowl and Mark Gascoigne, who published a bunch of things at Games Workshop. Yes. Number three, I'm blanking on this. Number three is Peter Atkinson, who set up Wizards of the Coast and published Magic the Gathering. And John Kavalek, the the cartoonist of Dork Tower, Uh, the illustrator, also co-created Apples to Apples. Number four is Rainer Knizia and uh, Tim Clare, the novelist, Number five is Matt Leacock and Leslie Scott, who created Jenga. Um, that's a really interesting juxtaposition. And then we did a sixth, a sixth, sixth, wrap up, which is a British broadcaster, Tim Harford, who's also a massive gamer. I was going to say I love Tim Harford. Yeah, he's he's a huge. I knew Tim before I knew his broadcasting. Um, he's a huge friend of a, a very of my best man, actually, Dave Morris. Um, I'm a big fan of Cautionary Tales oh have you heard this one about Eurovision no not on it's in my playlist it's it's really good Tim is excellent but also Holly Nielsen who's an up-and-coming academic really interesting on the social history of games and Chris Eggert who at the time was the editor of tabletop gaming magazine and has literally today is his last day on the magazine Oh wow! and that's really fun so there's that That is not in any way threatening to Dice Men come with because that's not an ongoing thing. Then there's Ludo Narrative Dissidence, which is a podcast about role-playing games. Each episode we just take one classic game or new game and we take it apart for 90 minutes and we look at how it works. And that's me, Greg Stolze, who's another games designer. Ross Payton, who's a designer and board game uh, podcaster, uh, role-playing game podcaster. And that's kind of where I am, where people can find me.
0: That's fantastic, James. There's so much content for people to follow up if they're more interested. But just want to say again, thank you so much for making the time tonight. It's been lovely talking with you. You have such a wealth of history in this hobby. And it's been great to mine that just a little bit this evening. Best of luck with the uh, the book. And hopefully we can catch up in the real world sometime.
2: I really hope so. It's um, I need to get back to Australia soon.
1: So there you go. That was the final of the two halves of the interview between Mark and James Wallace. Doesn't strike me as a Jimmy Wallace, does he? Not at all. Definitely a James. Mm -hmm. Um, So look, if you are interested, obviously he's got um, Everybody Wins, which is a physical book in these times, and it is going to be available on all of those various platforms. Um, And yes, definitely do recommend that you listen to his Everybody Wins podcast again. Mark, great job on the interview. Thank you, Garth. Um, And look, just before we go, Mm. we better wrap this up with a very professional bow, because we should announce our BorderCon winner.
0: Absolutely. And the lucky winner, which we drew recently, we actually drew it on our Patreon-only episode, uh, the winner was Ron Harrop, who is someone who has never been to BorderCon before. And now, Garth, guess what?
1: He gets to go. And? Gets to hang out with us. And? Uh, We play a game with him. Yep. And? Uh, We get to meet
0: his wife, even, because the two of them are going. Fantastic. The two of them have got tickets. Uh, They've already, as I understand, been liaising with Neil, uh, the lovely Neil from BorderCon, to get him there. He's looking at accommodation options. It's very exciting. So great But we do talk about BorderCon so much because it's such a great convention for playing games, for meeting old friends and meeting new friends, and he's going to get to make some new friends including us, who really are his old friends, because he has listened for quite some time. Absolutely. And a gentle reminder to our listeners that if you do want to get bonus entries into all our competitions, the way to do that is to become a Patreon supporter of ours. Uh, Many more details available on patreon.com forward slash Dice Men Cometh. Correct. Garth, I think we should leave it there because I think this episode has been long enough already.
1: Sounds perfect. And we've got to start packing for BorderCon.
0: It's only a couple of weeks away. It is so close. I hope everyone enjoys that interview. I hope everyone enjoys kites. Thanks so much to Good Games. Garth, I'll see you around the game table shortly. You shall. And we'll, uh, we'll be seeing all the listeners out there at BorderCon. Excellent. Bring it on away. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Bye. The Dice Man Cometh. You've been listening to another episode of the Dice Man Cometh, proudly brought to you by LFG Australia. Be sure to check out LFG-Oz.com.au For all the details of their online and physical retail store, you can find us at dicebandcommenth.com or on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And don't forget, you can support us on Patreon too. Thanks for listening.